you, as the authorized version puts it, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you are continuing in the faith, having been founded and steadfast, not being moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard and which was preached or proclaimed to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. And I now rejoice in my sufferings in your behalf, and I fill up the lack of Christ's afflictions in my flesh in behalf of his body, which is the church. You'll remember that after teaching at great length and with many specific points about the preeminence of Jesus Christ, Paul had urged the Colossians in the passage we just read to remain steadfast to the original gospel because it was the universal gospel. It was the gospel which was uh, proclaimed to every creature which is under heaven. And it was the gospel that Paul himself had been appointed by God to serve and proclaim. In other words, if they were going to turn to another gospel or turn away from this original gospel, they were uh, by definition turning away from Paul turning away from the apostles, turning away from what Paul had proclaimed, turning away from what God himself, according to Paul, had delivered to him. And then uh, Paul had said that he was a servant of this gospel, this particular original gospel, and he had started to explain what it was to be a servant of the gospel, what that involved for him, or for anyone really, but especially for him, uh, as the apostle to the Gentiles, and he said that it was going to involve, first of all, his sufferings, his stewardship, uh, his proclamation, and his strivings. And we began to consider last week this first element of Paul's suffering, or Paul's service to the gospel, which he explained to be his sufferings. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings in your behalf. I now rejoice in my sufferings in your behalf. There, verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1. Now, last week we talked about, among other things, what these sufferings involved. Do you remember the great passage from uh, Corinthians in which Paul uh, gives that lengthy list of all the different things which he had suffered on account of the gospel, that he had, had uh, of course, suffered persecution and uh, he'd been stoned uh, three times and he'd been imprisoned and he'd been uh, shipwrecked and he'd spent a day and a night in the sea, shipwrecked three times. Uh, he was in perils uh, from the Gentiles and from the Jews and from uh, just about everyone he was in perils from. Uh, he journeyed around. He had just suffered extensively in that long uh, list. He famine and starvation and nakedness and uh, hunger and all kinds of afflictions. So Paul was definitely suffering, uh, definitely suffering, and he rejoiced in these sufferings that were on account of the gospel. We saw that for certain as well. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And then thirdly, we learned that these sufferings, according to that text, were in some way, shape, or form in behalf of the Colossians. I was suffering for you in your <coughs> behalf. And that's approximately where we finished last time, but we were left with several questions 
among them, why was Paul rejoicing in these sufferings? We considered the testimony of Scripture that uh, the suffering of Christians is intimately connected to their future glory, but we saw that though that might be an underlying idea, that certainly wasn't the idea that was prominent in this text, uh, that it wasn't the, wasn't the main thing Paul was setting forward. So we have to ask the question, why is Paul rejoicing in these sufferings? We also have this question of what does it mean that Paul was suffering in behalf of the Colossians? Was he atoning for their sins? Was he suffering in their place? In other words, they should have been suffering, but he was suffering instead? Uh, was there some benefit that accrued to them on account of his sufferings? And if so, why? So we have, many que- we have as many questions that were raised by that text as answers so far. And so we want to continue today to look at this text, to get to the next part of the text, and try to find, perhaps, some answers to some of these questions, and probably raise some more. So he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings in your behalf. And he goes on, he says, And I fill up the lack of Christ's afflictions in my flesh in behalf of his body, which is the church. That's a fairly literal translation. The authorized version is fairly close to. And fill up that which is behind, as they say, which is kind of a curious phrase. It means what is wanting or lacking. That which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake. I fill up the lack of Christ's afflictions in my flesh in behalf of his body. Now, first of all, let me say, um, before we even go on, that this is an extremely difficult verse. There's simply no question about it. Uh, The normal thing that you do when you come to an extremely difficult verse, or any verse for that matter, but especially extremely difficult verses, is you go to the commentators. Because if you don't really have much of a clue as to what it means, you figure, well, maybe someone else does. And... The unfortunate thing is that you find out with many difficult verses, and this one is no exception, is that as many commentators as you examine, you have that many opinions on what the verse means. Uh, There is almost no, shall we say, standard view of the meaning of this verse. Now, we could sort of categorize them broadly speaking, but... uh, uh, but there are as many views as there are commentators. So it's, it's not a matter of just looking at the historical testimony of the church or something like that, because there isn't one. Uh, secondly, I think we can say before we go on that it is easier to say in many ways what this verse doesn't mean than what it does mean. Uh, and by that, I mean that in relatively short order, and we'll come to this, uh, we can remove it from being used by Roman Catholics to uphold certain heresies. Uh, Their idea that the uh, sufferings or the labors of the saints could would go into a kind of treasury or a storehouse which uh, of grace, which then we could receive forgiveness of sins through this, that kind of nonsense, that all substituting for Christ. Uh, we, can, we can get rid of that because of not only the verse itself and the letter itself in the context, but other clear testimony of Scripture. So, 
Um, it's fairly typical of heretics, and Roman Catholics are not accepted, that they take strange verses or curious verses, and they pull those out, and they build a huge doctrine on it, and they'll use that as some sort of anchor verses. Well, you know, we've got the scriptures on our side. We've got this verse right here, even though like 100% of the rest of the scripture contradicts what they say. But that's typical of heresy. They do that all the time. The Roman Catholics are the chiefs of that type of scriptural interpretation. But, uh, you know, I mean, you can think of uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, and all that kind of nonsense that they'll bring at you. Uh, so uh, so we, can, we can pretty conclusively say what it doesn't mean. Uh, the third thing I want to say before I, I really continue is that I'm going to offer a view... Uh, that I think will be within the pale of orthodoxy and uh, uh, what I consider to be based on the grammar and on the context and on similar verses, but I'm certainly not going to be dogmatic about it. So if you go and read something somewhere else and it seems more compelling to you, then you know that's perfectly fine by me. The first thing that we start with whenever we come to a verse like this, uh, we start with what's called a, a basic exegesis. It's a big word, um, strange word, but it just basically means that you're trying to to look at the text itself and see what it means and look at the grammar and the words that are used and things like that. And so when we come to a difficult text like this, and this should sort of serve as a pattern for you, for, for other biblical study of difficult places, come to a difficult text like this, the first thing you want to look at is see if there are any words that might be key words in helping you understand what this place in the Bible is saying. And sure enough, there are two. There are two key words used here. Uh, there is the word which is translated fill up. I fill up what is lacking. And then there's that second word, what is lacking. I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions. We've already talked about Christ's afflictions and what the word affliction meant. It didn't really help us much in this case. But we want to know, what does this, this translation mean? This, I fill up that which is behind. I fill up what is lacking. And so the first thing you want to do is you want to go and look at that word. So we're going to do that. And that's why I have our chalkboard here. I was going to have a handout, but I indeed completely forgot to make it and print it out, so I don't have one. So you're going to get a little Greek lesson here, and I hope it won't be too boring, but I figured if I wrote it on the chalkboard, it would be a lot less boring than if I just started saying Greek words, because then you'd probably go to sleep, and then I'd have to shout at you at the application part, and then you'd wake up. So um, the first word of importance is this word, I fill up. And let's see if we can write it on here. Uh, see if I can write it on here without making a mistake. I will not write it in Greek script for you, uh, since that probably would like not make you very happy. I will write it in kind of an English uh, phonetic spelling. It, it's a word, antana plerao, if you like that. It looks like this. It's really three parts. I'll write it in three parts. Okay, so what we have, we have this word in phonetic, antana plerao, long a, long o at the end. So you think, well, maybe this will help us. We've got this word, antana plerao. So you go into your, uh, your uh, little lexicon or whatever, and you say, maybe the first thing you always want to do, right, is see if this word is used someplace else. 
So you go on your lexicon, you say, here it is, let's see if it's used someplace else. Well, it isn't. Okay, so that's strike one. It's not used anywhere else in all the scriptures. So then, then I got clever, and I said, well, okay, we can deal with this. Uh, we will see if it's used in the Septuagint. So that's the Greek Old Testament. So we go to the Septuagint. We look in our little Septuagint uh, concordance, and it's not used there either. In fact, the only place that this word is ever used in all of history is in something by Plutarch, which is some Greek uh, author, and it doesn't seem to have much to do here. It's, it was something to that effect. So it's a very uh, uh, obscure word. But fortunately, it's a compound word. Now, you know what a compound word is, right? Like weak end, weak end, right? That kind of thing. So this is a compound word, too. It's actually made up of three different Greek words, anti, ana, and plerao. Okay, so we got three words. Now this helps. So we can go and we can see what play. This is the base part of the word right here, this plerao. That's the words used all over the scriptures. It means to, well, it's used a lot of ways. For example, all those places where it says, and thus it was fulfilled what was prophesied in the prophet Isaiah or something like that, it's that word fulfill. Thus it was fulfilled. Or... It's used to mean to fill, like be filled with the Spirit, same word, uh, uh, plerao, uh, or to complete, like uh, after this he had completed all that he had to do, to complete. So to fulfill, to fill, to complete, that kind of idea. Uh, but that doesn't help us much because we've got all this other stuff on the front of it. So we've got this word that could mean fulfill, could mean fill, could mean complete. So then we say, well, let's, let's look at this word and this combination here and see if we can get anywhere. So we go to ana plerao. Okay. Ana is a preposition. And when you add it to the word, you find out this is a new word in Scripture. And it's used six times. Now we're getting somewhere. This word ana plerao also means to fulfill. It's used the same way as thus it was fulfilled, what was written in the prophet Isaiah. It is also translated to fill up, but... We pick up a new meaning, and this is the one that's going to be important, and we'll take notice of it later, because it'll be really important because of what happens. It is used to mean to take someone's place or to supply in someone's place. Um, we'll, come to the, we'll come to the uses in a second. Uh, I'll give them to you now. It's Philippians 2.30 and 1 Corinthians 16.17. So we'll go to those two texts in a moment. Uh, well, in fact, let's let's go ahead and read them so you get the idea. Philippians chapter 2, verse 30, he says, well, this is talking about Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus has come to uh, Philippi, and he's been ministering to the Apostle Paul. And Epaphroditus was, uh, uh, was sick near death, and uh, Paul is returning him to them so that they can rejoice and he can be less sorrowful. And he says, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ he was near to death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. To supply your lack of service. Now if you remember when we preached on Philippians, and uh, that uh, the gist of what we're saying here is that since the Philippians couldn't be there to help Paul, Epaphroditus in their place was ministering to Paul. So to supply in someone's place. Ana plerao. Okay? The other place is fairly similar. 1 Corinthians uh, 16, 17, and 18. 
It says, I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part they have supplied, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. This is a very similar passage, isn't it? He says almost the same thing. The Corinthians couldn't be there with Paul, and so Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus supply what was lacking on your part they have supplied. So getting the idea here. On a playrao, uh, to supply in someone's place. The problem is, this is anti anaplerao, or when you move it together, like in English, sometimes you drop the vowel, that's what happens, the I goes away. So, antana playrao. What does this mean when we put this on here? Well, anti, we've heard that before, haven't we? Anti Christos, the Antichrist. What does that mean? We said it means the instead of Christ. It can mean against, but guess what? The primary meaning of anti in the New Testament in composition, which means when you put it together with another word, because it's a preposition by itself, when you put it together with other words, the primary meaning is instead of. Instead of. There's simply no debate about that anymore. It's all over the New Testament. It's all over the Greek documents they've dug up out of the you know digs or whatever. Everywhere, anti is instead of. So, when we put this together, it seems to be adding to this concept of supplying in someone's place. To supply instead of someone else. Okay, so where are we now? Well, <laughs> this is why it takes me all week. Uh, the, the, the first word of importance, then, gives us this idea that Paul is supplying or filling up... Uh, in someone else's place. It's definitely an idea of substitution. There's no question about it. Anaplerao, the two uses of it are very clear there. And with anti in front of it, it just compounds the whole thing. So we start with that. But we find out there's this other word, this second word, that's extremely important. And that is the word, huster ema. We'll write that on here too. That's what it looks like in... Uh, English. Husterema. Husterema. Now, what does this word mean? It means a need, a deficiency. Um, in the plural, because it's in the plural here, it has a slightly different shade of meaning. And according to the grammars, it means a shortcoming that must be removed so that perfection can be attained. That's kind of a long, convoluted explanation of what it means. I'm not sure I believe it totally, but that's what they say anyway in the grammars. A shortcoming that must be removed so that perfection can be attained. Now, here's the interesting thing. When we start looking at uses of the word hysterema, we find, surprise, that it frequently accompanies anaplerao. Now that helps us a lot, because now we've got the same, basically the same two words used here as we do in other places in the scripture. Where are those places? 1 Corinthians 16, 17, 18, Philippians 2, 30. Supply, he says that, uh, that in the case of uh, Epaphroditus, for the work of Christ he was near unto death to supply your lack to supply your lack, in this case, of service towards me. They weren't there ministering. He was supplying the lack in their place. And then also then in, in 1 Corinthians that uh, uh, Stephanus and Fortunatus and the other were, uh, were that, that what was, uh, what did he say there, what was wanting, 
what was lacking on your part, there it is, what was lacking on your part, they have supplied. So whenever we have these two words together, what we find out is that it's always the idea of someone supplying something, someone supplying in another person's place their lack, what was lacking. Okay, where does this put us? Well, if we start paraphrasing, it looks something like this. He says, Paul's saying, the sufferings that I'm experiencing right now because of the gospel are for your sake and I'm rejoicing in them. That's the first part of the verse. Furthermore, these sufferings that I'm now experiencing in my own flesh, I experience in the place of Christ to complete what was lacking in the afflictions he suffered. That's what it says. He says, the sufferings I experience in my own flesh, I am experiencing in the place of Christ to complete what was lacking of his sufferings, of his afflictions. I should point out, I've offered you that, I should point out that some people, some commentators, would connect the, uh, in the place of, to the Colossians and not to Christ. So then you get a different idea. Um, it would be... I am uh, I'm suffering not in the place of Christ, in the place of the church. So you'd be saying, I fill up instead of you what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. But you see, it doesn't help any. Because someone is filling up what is lacking of Christ's sufferings. Either Paul is doing it in the place of Christ, or the Paul is doing it in the place of the Colossians, or in the place of the church at large, but he's still filling up what's lacking of Christ's sufferings. And that still gives us a theological problem. Because we're talking about what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. So, uh, we got a pretty difficult concept coming up here. Now, how, how are we going to get at the meaning? So we thought, well, maybe if we looked at these key words, we'd get at the meaning. All we've gotten is an explanation. We've gotten a real good look at it. We've gotten words that make this text look even more problematic than maybe it did at first. Because now we know for sure what these concepts mean. There's no question... Hustarema is lack, what's wanting. He says very clearly there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions. We have no question that this now means to fill up in someone else's place, to supply what someone else wasn't doing, because they weren't there. Let's add that to our definition. It's supplying, not just supplying what someone else was lacking, but supplying in someone else's place because that person wasn't there. Because in both cases that we saw these words combined, that was the idea. The Corinthians weren't there, Fortunatus and Achaicus were. The Philippians weren't there, but Epaphroditus was. It was, it was to supply in the place of someone who wasn't there. Now, we're going to turn away from this whole thing for a second and try a different angle. We want to broaden out our consideration of the text um, to look at some parallel passages that are not exactly the same, but are going to shed some light on this. Uh, and they, are, they relate to the doctrine of Christian suffering and how it relates to Christ's sufferings. Because that's obviously what's in question here. Paul is suffering. We heard about Christ's afflictions. How do these things relate? Is, are there any other texts that can shed light on what this means? Well, let's, let's outline, first of all, a little bit of the doctrine of Christian suffering and its leading points, some of the things we've considered in recent weeks. We saw that suffering was a given for Christians. It will happen. It's the normal, predictable result of becoming a Christian, isn't it? It's prophesied. It's exemplified. Matthew 10.25, he says, If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, 
Because if, if they call, this is Jesus speaking, if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, what are they going to do to those of the household? You see, he says if they're called, Jesus says if they call me the devil, what do you think they're going to call you, my followers? Okay, so there's no question. If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, what are they going to call those of the household? He says in another place, if they're doing this, these wicked persecuting things in the green leaf, meaning when I'm here, what are they going to do in the dry, meaning when I'm gone? Right? It was very, he was already letting them know. Then he says it very specifically, you shall be hated of all men for my namesake. He didn't say you shall have victory in love with all people because everybody loves a Christian because 98% of people we found statistically if you approach them with the gospel are ready to be saved. He doesn't say that, does he? He says you shall be hated of all men for my namesake. And then, of course, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, Paul writing to Timothy. So, suffering is going to happen. Now, why? Christian suffering is on account of the gospel, it's on account of holiness, it's on account of Jesus Christ. The, the Christian is saying, these are truths about Jesus Christ. The world says, Jesus Christ is Beelzebub. So there's a conflict there. The, the Christian says, you have to receive this gospel to be saved. The world says, you can take your gospel and go somewhere with it, because we don't like to hear it, right? Because uh, the Christian's saying, if you don't believe this, you'll perish. So there's a conflict there. Holiness. The Christian is being sanctified by the word of God and by the spirit of Christ. The world is, uh, it, says, it says they... They, they don't understand why you won't run with them to their excess of riot in uh, Peter. So there's a conflict. Our Lord suffered, it says, the contradiction of sinners. So also must we. As long as the world hates him, it will hate those who proclaim and believe him. What did we just read this morning in 1 Peter chapter 4? He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. This is verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are happy, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's evil spoken of, but on your part, he's glorified. Don't suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. But if a man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. So we don't suffer because we're thieves or murderers or something like that. We're suffering because we're Christians. <clears throat> And then finally, the Christian suffering we see both glorifies God, and then as we considered last week, is the pathway to personal glory, suffering glory, just like Jesus. Suffering glory, you follow the same road, suffering glory. So is that it? Is that everything the scriptures teach on Christian suffering? Well, it isn't. There's more, and this is where we're going to start to get to somewhat of an explanation of our text, as much as we can possibly give. The scriptures teach, don't they, that there's a unity between Christ and the church. What do they call? They say that he's the body, I mean, he's the head, and the church is the body. Christ is the head of a body. Now, how many people do you know that have no unity between their head and their body and are still alive? I mean, do you know anybody who's headless or like they keep their head at home? I don't mean they keep their mind at home. I mean, they keep their actual head at home and they go off with their body somewhere else. No, you don't, do you? Because you'd be dead, okay? Uh, that'd be gross. And, uh, and, you know, it'd be on TV or something. Uh, so there's, uh, there's a unity between the head and the body. Now, what kind of unity is this? Is this just figurative? Is this figurative language? I don't think so. The scriptures paint the picture of what we call, in big theological words, organic unity. Sometimes it's called the mystical union. 
between Christ and the church. That there's really somehow, I mean, even though Jesus is Jesus and we are us, that somehow because of the Spirit of Christ indwelling us, constituting us as the body, his church, that there is a kind of mystical union between Christ and his people through his Spirit. And for this reason, and this is very important, it can be said truly that what the church experiences, Christ experiences. Let me show you what the church experiences, Christ experiences. Now, very generally, Jesus himself taught this in Matthew chapter 25. This is the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, this is the end of the world, and all the holy angels with him, then he'll sit upon the throne of his glory, and, and he'll gather all the nations before him, and he'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He'll set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, that's the sheep, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? What? Because Jesus is gone. Jesus has been gone now for 2,000 years. We haven't seen him and done these things to him, or have we? And the king shall answer them and say unto them, Truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you've done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. And then the reverse process takes place with the goats on the left hand. He says, You depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. I was, I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And they say, Lord, we never saw you thirsty or hungry or naked or in prison. And he says, Inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment. So the doctrine is that what is done to the least of his brethren to his church, to his body, is done unto him. Acts chapter 9, let's talk something specifically about persecution. Paul was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, meaning Christianity, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. He'd already been at Stephen's, they're consenting unto Stephen's death. Now he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. He was taking the Christians prisoner, delivering them to the authorities to be, uh, to be tortured and killed. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined a light round about him from heaven. And he fell to the earth. And Paul heard a voice. This is Saul this time, at this time. Saul heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you persecute. Now, had Paul seen Jesus? No. Jesus was dead and raised and in heaven. Of course, Paul thought he was just dead at that time, of course. He didn't believe he was resurrected. To him, Jesus was a dead man. And indeed, Jesus had died and raised and left. He was ascended into heaven. It's where he was. Stephen saw him in heaven. When, you know, the heavens opened up and he said, I see the Son of Man and he was received into heaven when he was dying. Jesus in heaven, he ascended, no question about that. Why then does he say, 
Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you persecute. Because what the church experiences, according to Matthew 25, Christ himself experiences. Not merely the relief of affliction, but also the persecution and affliction on account of the gospel. That's the first part of the thing that we learn about Christian suffering, what what the church experiences, Christ experiences. However, there's a vice versa to this. There's another side to it. The scriptures also teach that when we suffer for the gospel, we partake in some way, uh, and those are the words, very word, partake of Christ's sufferings. Philippians 3.10 says, speaks of the fellowship of his sufferings, having fellowship, having communion, having some sort of relationship with the sufferings of Christ by suffering for the gospel oneself. Or we can see in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, As the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. He says, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. The sufferings of Christ abound in us. And then again, passage we were just looking at uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, and I skipped the verse when I read it this last time, but I'll go back and get it. 1 Peter chapter 4, it says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice, verse 13, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now, Obviously, in some of the passages about suffering, not these that I've read, but in some of the passages about suffering, they just seem to say that we suffer on account of Christ, suffering for the sake of the gospel and things like that. These passages are different. They're very much stronger. They point to some kind of mystical unity, a fellowship with Christ's own sufferings, a participation in Christ's afflictions. It's stronger language. It's not merely just, you know, you suffer because you believe the gospel. That's there. But this says that those sufferings are partaking of Christ's afflictions. Now, this passage, Colossians 1.24, goes even further. Because it says not only are the sufferings of Christians actually experienced in some sense by Christ, not only are the sufferings of Christians somehow they are partaking in the vice versa of Christ's sufferings because of this union. But this verse says, in essence, that the sufferings of Christians, or at least of some Christians in this life, and I think all Christians eventually, but this is a different point here, sufferings of Christians in this life are actually the continuation of the sufferings that Christ experienced in this world. Paul says that he is suffering Christ's afflictions, he is suffering in the place of Christ, anti anaplerao, instead of to supply instead, in the place of Christ. Because Christ is no longer here, right? Just like Philippians aren't here, so Epaphroditus supplies their lack. The Corinthians aren't here, so Fortunatus supplies his lack. Jesus isn't here, so Paul, in this continuation of Christ's affliction, which are properly called Christ's afflictions because of the mystical union, Paul suffers in his place. If Jesus were here, the idea is Jesus would be suffering. But instead, he's gone, so I'm suffering in his place. Paul says he suffers in his, in his own person 
as he presses onward in the service given to him by Christ. This is the important thing, because remember, it's not just this guy Paul, and let's, you know, make him suffer. Paul is appointed by God. He is made a servant of the gospel. What is it to be a servant of the gospel? It's to suffer. Why suffering? Because Christ is gone, and so you suffer in his place. Paul says, very descriptively, Galatians 6.17, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus, or I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I bear on my body. What does he mean by that? He was beaten three times with... with, uh, uh, 40 stripes save one. He had scars. He bore on his body the marks of Jesus. Not the, this is a, I give you a classic example of Roman Catholics. You know what they do with this? This is stigmata. You know what that is? That's the, the, these, they claim these people start bleeding in their hands and their feet. Okay, and, that, and that's a miracle, you know, that's the marks of Jesus. They say, oh, Paul had the stigmata, he bore the marks of Jesus. Okay, is there any place in the whole scripture? You f- no, of course not. So they go to this obscure verse and they say, here it is, it proves it, the marks of Jesus. No, sorry, but just had to throw that out. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He was beaten. How can he say they're the marks of Jesus? Well, sure, I mean, he's marks because of the gospel are the marks of Jesus, but I think because he's filling up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions. They're the marks of Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.5, the sufferings of Christ abound in us. The sufferings of Christ abound in us. So that's the first thing then that we learn from this text, that the, some of these sufferings seem to be, he seems to be saying that they are the continuation of the sufferings that Christ experienced in this world. Christ is gone So someone else has to take his place, since he's gone, to experience these sufferings. Why? Well, that brings us to the second point. Because this verse teaches there's a kind of quota of suffering. Do you know what a quota is? No, you don't know what a quota is? A quota is a a certain number, a certain amount. Like, uh, let's say you work for, you're a salesman, and they'll say you have to sell 30 pairs of shoes this month. That's a quota. 30 pairs of shoes, a certain amount, okay? This verse seems to teach that there's a kind of quota of suffering, a certain amount, just as there's a number to the elect, because there are, aren't there? There's a certain number of people that are the elect, and no more. There's a quota of the elect. There's a measure of time from now until the end of the world, right? The world, in fact, from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. It's not forever. We can know, it's a measure of time. We don't know how long, it's a measure of time. Just the same way, and, and in fact, perhaps because of that fact, there is a quantity, there's a measurable amount of suffering that's to be borne by the church, and in this way, to fill up the measure of Christ's affliction. Because since Christ is mystically joined to his body, the church, and those afflictions of the church are truly Christ's afflictions, and because by suffering for on account of Christ, you in turn are partaking of Christ's afflictions, it's a two-way relationship, then from now till the end of the world... There's going to be suffering in the church, and then at that point it stops. There has to be a certain amount, so there is a lack in Christ's afflictions that has to be uh, filled up. And Paul, by suffering in the place of Christ since he's gone, is filling up part of this lack. Now, that tells us what's going on, but it doesn't tell us exactly what the significance of this suffering in the place of Christ is, does it? See, we don't learn what it does. We just learn now we understand it's the continuation of the sufferings that Christ experienced, suffering in the place of Christ since he's gone. There's a quota of suffering. It's filling up his lack. Okay, what, 
what does this suffering accomplish? We need to be very clear about one thing, and that is as far as redemption goes, it was Christ only who covenantally stood in the place of the elect and received 100% of the wrath of the Father to reconcile us to God by his works and by his death. We and Paul and our sufferings and our labors add zero to this, right? We know that. Paul, I mean, Paul says, I glory only in the cross of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I glory in Christ plus me. I mean, this is the whole point, Jesus only. That's the clear teaching of the New Testament. I, I trust that you believe that and know that, so I'm not going to spend time on it. And it's even the burden of the earlier portion of this letter. Now, you know, are we to believe that Paul, after teaching them that Jesus is preeminent and he's the one who redeemed them only by his sufferings and the body of his flesh through death, that it was Je- they were alienated and wicked and weren't paying any attention to God, and God saved them through Jesus Christ's work and only him and he's preeminent. Now he's saying, by the way, I, Paul, am part of Jesus' sufferings and so you can get redemption through me. Of course not. Paul is not some sort of madman who in the halfway through the first chapter of the letter suddenly abandons his former doctrine and adopts a new doctrine. Rather, rather, let me get the quote right, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. That's what Peter says about Paul's epistles. There are some things in them hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest to their own destruction. I believe this is one of those places. He is not trying to contradict the entire doctrine of the New Testament and suddenly introduce Paul's sufferings as redemptive. Paul is not, cannot, will not teach that the sufferings of Christ are incomplete in that sense, in the redemptive sense. But there is a sense in which, because, as we said, of the mystical union between Christ and the church... Because the sufferings of the church are the sufferings of the Christ, and because the church will suffer until his return, that there is a shortcoming in his sufferings. See, it's because of the mystical union. They have not all been experienced by him as yet, and can only be experienced by him since he's gone through the suffering of his disciples. So there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions, because if we graph it, it's Jesus, here's the end. This is the end of the world. Here's Jesus, he was crucified, and he ascended, Jesus is gone, so he can't suffer anymore, he can only suffer here through the afflictions of his church, which by the mystical union with them, he partakes of, and they partake of his sufferings, and it's, they call them the sympathetic afflictions of Christ, or sympathetic sufferings of Christ, in theological language. This remains to occur. Because Jesus is gone, but all this suffering has to take place before the end. So, we wreck the place. There is a lack. There's a lack. And it can only be by the suffering of his disciples. Now, it is clearly, as we close, we're still left with a question. So far we understand what all this is, what he's talking about now. He says... Uh, I'm suffering, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings, I'm suffering in the place of Christ because he's gone, and I'm suffering in the place of Christ to fill up what is lacking in his afflictions, and we understand why he can say that he's suffering in the place of Christ, why he can say they're Christ's afflictions, how there can be something lacking, we understand that. What we don't know yet is, 
And it's clearly the teaching of this passage and others that the sufferings of the apostle not only glorified God and not only would be personally rewarded in heaven, but were benefit to the were of benefit to the entire church. I'm suffering in your behalf. And so that raises the question, how and why can the apostle say that in filling up these afflictions of Christ, he's suffering in behalf of the Colossians? What benefit? Is it in their place? Is there benefit? And that's the question we'll get to next week as we hopefully complete this very difficult and complicated passage.